Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, we're going to look at the podcast highlights from 2020. I can't believe it, we're at the end of 2020. What a crazy year of ups and downs it has been. To celebrate, I'm going to be sharing the 10 highlights from the 10 highest impact elite game developers podcast episodes from this year. If you didn't listen to any of these episodes in 2020, I definitely suggest you choose one of these to listen after you've gone through all of these highlights. They cover everything from company building to fundraising to product and so much more. So let's kick it off. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hey game developer! Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content IGC by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. This first highlight is from January 2020 when I was talking with Harry Manninen from Play Ventures. We talk about how Harry sees companies graduating from pre-seed to seed to series A and what are the characteristics for those companies who make it from one stage to another. When you do an investment into a company, uh, some per, like start performing better than others. H have you seen like these kind of like signals or signs from companies that you've been working with? Like, what are the positive developments and the negative developments there? Yeah, good, great question. I, I think, again, like just being active in showing progress and communicating progress. I mean, that, that sounds so simple, but that's mm -hmm. often true, right? If, if, if you don't hear from a company, then it's often because things are not going great. Um, and I know this from you know, when we were building the media company, um, you know, it's so easy when things don't go your way to sort of hunker down and go into the shell 
of of not really sort of <laughs> talking to anybody. And so I think it sounds simple, but the more the more you sort of communicate your progress, that's always a great sign. And if you go even deeper into that, like if you already have a build out there, like purely if you're building a game, if you're a game studio, just seeing like constant updates on that game, like if you are, if it's a mobile game and you're on test flight and you're getting like a new test flight version every week, and that's often a great sign. It's like things are happening, you know, the product is moving ahead. It's obviously not as simple as that, but it's like these small, small signs that, that you, you tend to see a lot. But, you know, entrepreneurs, what's, what's been fantastic now that we've invested globally into 16 companies is like, these are amazing entrepreneurs who work in so different ways. The, just the cultures are so different. Um, you know, uh, a founder CEO in Istanbul, Turkey is probably way different from a founder CEO in Helsinki, Finland, from, from, from a lot of, you know, how they, how they um, just how they operate. They're both super talented. Um, and then so are the teams. So, so sometimes it's, it's also a function of that. Sometimes, you know, you may not hear anything from a team and you're like, oh my God, like what's happening? You're taking a flight over and then they're absolutely killing it. And they're like, we have just haven't had time to talk to you. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it's, uh, it's hard to say like, but what's uh, is there like a common trait you can always sort of look at, but just, just, just the progress. Cause it's, if you think about like, if, if you would be investing in a company, like, and, and, and somebody showed very little progress or has been zigzagging, you know, just unfocused from seed, and now they're raising a Series A. It's not a great story usually, unless there's a clear reason for it. Also in January of 2020, I talked with Minvo Lee, the head of product at Do Dreams. We talked about player motivations in games, and I wanted to know what methodologies Minvu applies to his work on games. For the decision makers and stakeholders in these gaming companies, people who are not necessarily sitting in the game team, yes. what is the kind of like the fundamental knowledge that these people should have regarding game design? So first of all, in my theory, if you have to decide really important things about the game or about game product or production, I think that person should be in the team. And I know that stakeholders are oftentimes like, you know, you know, those business partners and not like hands-on role. But first of all, I still believe they have to understand the game and all, all the team's strengths and the capability first. But the one thing I highlight here is that understand why players will play this game with the core mechanics, what's the core motivation and why, what makes them keep playing. And then they oftentimes have to decide the priority. For example, the crucial role as a product lead is making sure that what is more important than others so that the feature prioritization should be shared. You know, uh, they should understand clearly what it is. And maybe the last thing is that they should be able to articulate the designs and idea as a one core structure so that the team and the stakeholders uh, fully understand why they are doing this and how to articulate their games in a few sentences, for example, so that they clearly understand the map and the game mechanic as well. I really wanted to bring this up because I know for a fact that if things go smoothly, numbers are looking good. The yeah. team, it doesn't need to go outside of the team to have understanding yes. about the design. But when there are 
numbers that aren't satisfying, that yes. need improvement. Maybe they need improvement for six months of extra work. You go into the discussion that you need to talk with the management. Maybe even the board needs to hear the ideas and the issues that the game is having. And then they need to have you know, some kind of education in this area. That's absolutely true. So I'm not saying that someone like board or management team's decision was always right or wrong or bad or good, but it really requires the market data. It shouldn't be based on the person's assumption, like, I don't like it or I like this type. It should Mm -hmm. be based on the market data and we should prove all the unknowns before we take any kind of actions. In March, I talked with Callum Brighting from NetSpeak Games. Callum and his team had just raised their seed round and Callum was starting on this journey of building his first gaming studio. So I wanted to know about his approach to company building. How are you actually learning to become a CEO? Like it's your first time doing it. Hmm. What's your trick? <laughs> My trick? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, assuming this all works and then we can look back on this and be like, ah, oh, that man was a genius. But also, I guess if it doesn't work, you can look back and you can see this as a list of things to not do. So I guess either way, it's valuable to talk about it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so I've got like, I've tried a whole bunch of things, man. <laughs> I don't know if any of this is going to work. Um, I've got like five post-it notes stuck up on my, on my wall, uh, like at home in the kitchen and on my monitor, right? I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> um, uh, so one says hiring is easy. Happiness is hard. Um, so that was a guy that was a, a another CEO of his own law firm told me that. And I was moaning at him about the fact that you know, we're, we're 12 people and they're great, but we've had so much talent apply already. Um, I could have built three other teams by now, um, fully functioning, you know, engineers with artists, with content creators, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was like, oh, this, this, this phase sucks. Like I want to be in the aggressive growth phase. Um, and he said, he just looked at me and he's just like, Cal, he's like, for someone like you, hiring is always going to be easy. So you're never going to struggle to hire. You're in London. Like it's fine. Um, happiness is hard. He's like, you have to be obsessed with their happiness. And I don't know why that really hit me. I was just like, oh, you're totally right. It would be so easy to hire 60 really unhappy people and then not retain them for two years. right? <laughs> um, so hiring is easy. Happiness is hard. That's one that's that sort of stuck with me. Um, belonging, a definition of belonging from a philosopher that I've got written down. Um, when I look back on the jobs where I've been at my best and the jobs where I think I've had the biggest impact on that business, ages reflecting on it right and just trying to figure out what was different about those places and i boiled it down to it felt like i belonged there that was that was the difference like when i left it wasn't just like it it, it was emotionally challenging leaving that place not not necessarily because i was upset or sad right like i left um, when i left my job at bloomberg i was very upset about it but i was super happy to be moving on but the thing is i felt like i belonged in that team um at least for a while and so I've got a definition of belonging, which I'm trying to give everyone, right? I want everyone at NetSuite to feel like they belong when, it, when they're here. Um, and it's a combination of like identity, it's like social, it's impact, it's responsibility. Um, and so th- those are the things I want everyone to feel. Um, because I think that if we have a team of, you know, if you've got a team of 12 people and we all feel like we belong together, then there's, there's nothing we can't overcome, right? 
Um, and then the other one is think long term, <laughs> which yeah. is the, the hardest one, man. Like no one, everyone says do it right, but no one has any practical guidance on how. <laughs> like, what do you do? Do you, what do I just, in the morning? Do I just sit and think about the future? Like, what does that even mean? I'm a programmer, right? Like, I'm a I'm a finite state machine. <laughs> There's think long term means nothing to me. In June, I talked with Christian Segerstrahler the CEO of Super Evil Megacorp. Uh, we spent time talking about his previous company, Playfish, which was a huge success and which he eventually sold to EA for hundreds of millions about how he approaches learning from success and failure. Yeah, I think like you guys really shined as a different operator on the Facebook canvas because you focus so much on the quality gaming experience. There was a lot of text-based stuff going on. You had Singa, this was like pre-Farmville even, the, like the quality was pretty, pretty bad. And then you suddenly see, you know, Pet Society coming up. Like it looked amazing, felt amazing to play. Uh, where did that like realization happen that, hey, Flash is the the thing that we should be doing and doubling down on really good games. Well, I guess recall that the original idea of the company was not, hey, let's make some Facebook games and try to exploit the viral graph and the, uh, you know, the arbitrage between acquisition cost and lifetime value. Like we didn't even know, we didn't know there was such vocabulary as consumer acquisition cost and lifetime value when we set up the company. Like we didn't understand any of that stuff, K factors and whatnot, right? Mm. We wanted to make great games that brought people together in the way that the Nintendo we did in the living room, but with the mm. online elegance of a platform like Facebook. Mm. So it was never in the cards for us at any point to do anything else than pursue that vision of creating shared gameplay in the best way that we know how. And to be honest, like, I mean, yes. that was some, one of the things that probably held us back as a company is that because of our early success with, in fact, like our first game, who was the biggest brain, grew so fast it was most you know it became the biggest game on facebook very quickly and then when we launched pet society when we thought hey you know what we want to we want to create more persistence because who is the bigger spain had no persistence whereas pet society was really a, a longer term uh, thing and um and with much more expression needed progression needed all of those things friendships all of those things that you would you would want in that kind of game and um we had such runaway success with our first set of products in general because they looked and felt so different from anything else that was on there that i don't think yeah. we ever really to think like what are the real economics of this business and what, what are the real long-term drivers yeah. we literally mm -hmm. felt like every time we make a good game it's top three or top five in the platform so hey let's just make some more good games and sort of in in, in retrospect we probably could have done i mean and we did obviously I mean, we did pretty well like the company grew very fast and and uh, in sort of 20 23 months i think since founding we had like 60 million monthly actives and you know substantially profitable and, and growing but um had to you know in, in retrospect sometimes early success with a thing makes you not examine very carefully and cautiously what is driving that success and hence and be a little bit you know in retrospect i would have probably been a little bit more paranoid about why is nobody else you know we have a superpower in making this graphically rich beautifully playing games because that's how we grew up right. like i mean that's what we've learned to do as a team yeah but are there other superpowers that we should have as a company that we don't have because mm. clearly other companies are growing very fast making a bunch of money in this space with none of our superpowers and you know we thought about it but i don't think that we thought about it deeply enough and certainly as entrepreneurs i think certainly i wasn't back then mature enough to 
be more paranoid about, hey, what is actually driving the success of these others? I certainly didn't reach out perhaps enough to the, you know, to the uh, chief execs and other folks like in the industry mm. in such a way as to, mm. as to feel like I would have truly figured it out. And, you know, sometimes you get drunk on your own success in some ways. Like, yeah. you know, when you, when things go really well, you just question it a lot less, which is why I love failure as a teacher or like mistakes and stuff as a teacher, because at least certainly the way my brain tends to work is I just end up overanalyzing yeah. or analyzing it to death in such a way as never again. Whereas with success, you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, I'm awesome, you know? <laughs> In September, I had a chat with Salone Seghal, partner at Lumikai Fund. I wanted to ask about Salone's previous experiences in gaming and how the game industry has grown to support more diverse audiences. The, the female audience in gaming, like there's this big opportunity definitely for you know, opening up a new market, like how, how will the games industry grow? It's definitely like not going to be the shooter audience probably. <laughs> so how, can you talk about the opportunity for developers to, to attract an audience, a sure. new audience and the ways that developers should be thinking about, especially about the female audience? Sure. So, you know, this is a very controversial topic. When I used to, when I was building my company, and that was, you know, many years, a couple of years back already now. And uh, and the view has changed in the market for that. And I'm very glad to see that. But at that point of time, there used to be a lot of skepticism and a lot of resistance uh, around this idea. You know, a lot of people used to tell me, oh, why do we need entertainment, which is focused on games, which are focused on a particular gender, like Candy Crush is is not focused, built for women, but yet it is played by women. So why do you need to have specifically a single out female audiences? And you know, But nobody could at that point of time answer my question is that, is that clearly for years in games development, the male perspective has often been the only one for building and designing games. And we have seen across other entertainment, whether it's books, whether it's film, that there is a appetite and there is obviously a demand for a certain kind of entertainment which does appeal to a female audience and games being far more interactive games being far more immersive have still yet to scratch the surface of what that feminine entertainment looks like you know there have been multiple research studies on the way men and women game there have been multiple more studies on the motivations for male players versus female players. And I'm not saying that, you know, these are very clearly demarcated. Yes, there are men who like to play games to relax. And yes, there are women who like to play games to be competitive and to destroy and to shoot. But there are certain characteristics and typicalities of a particular gender when they're approaching games. And yet it isn't catered to, you know, there was a very interesting research or a white paper that Google did with Newzo maybe a year and a half, two years back, where they said that 60% of casual gamers in the US are women, but yet less than 30% that users feel that less than 30% of games are actually built for women. You know, last year I did this detailed research where I spoke to product managers and game designers from Supercell, Blue, Zynga, and the consensus was that companies have yet to scratch the surface of what that entertainment looks like. It's it's not about pink princesses. It's not about romances. It's not just about catering and tending to farm animals. But there is a need to build more complex, more immersive 
gaming experiences and contents globally for for female or feminine audiences and that can only happen if you have more diverse teams which have more women in them and you can that can only happen when you've got a lot more women in decision making roles because it is very obvious to me that in order to build products and audiences for that audience you need to have people in your team who look like that audience and if you don't you're probably likely to miss out in october i had a chat with steelfront's ceo and founder jürgen larsson on how they built this amazing games company uh, which comprises of 15 unique gaming studios from all around the world so i asked jürgen about his thoughts on how developers founders entrepreneurs could create this long-term sustainability for a company in gaming a question about what do you think in gaming can really build long-term sustainability for a games company a studio what like since we're relying to have games where you don't really necessarily know until it launches if it's going to work or not so what do you think about the the long-term sustainability if you take a very big picture i think it's it's a it's a massive structural growth in gaming and it will be for quite some time i cannot imagine that the consumer the total universe of consumers represent perfectly the demographics of society there is nothing suggesting that if you have consumed games as a natural component in the entertainment that you consume and your social presence on that that you consume through games or for competitive you would like to compete or whatever it is for whatever of the main drivers for consuming games if you consume that your whole life up until you're 35 you will not quit it's like saying that i don't believe in music anymore it will not happen i don't believe in movies anymore that will not happen so games will continue to have a solid structural growth for many years then we need as developer and publishers there is so much un, unmade undeveloped unpublished and uncreated uh, how many games are designed to start with to be a perfect match for the the growing female audience quite few i would say so that's one area which is huge um, uh, how many games are designed for for uh, 50 to 60 year old people quite few and so on so there's so many areas to to further explore so i think that the the industry will grow for structural reasons for a very very long time and i think also the 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 pandemic and all the bad things that comes with that but i think also it has accelerated slightly the the more and more people have have consumed more gaming as a natural component so that will be a sustainable thing so i think there is a there's a huge sustainable opportunity because there's so even though it's a huge industry now i mean when i found this different it was 200 million people playing games now it's 2.7 billion this this year but still it should be uh 5 billion and it should be a much more sophisticated and refined business so and that is sustainable because it's just reflecting humankind and human people again have played games for 5000 years they will do it for another 5000 10000 years this is just a small window when new technology could 
make games even more exciting. So it's a, it's a leap in that way. But the whole thing, the phenomena, human beings, it's natural to compete, to socialize, or just to get entertained, to play games. Mm. It's completely human. And that's why it's so sustainable. In March, I had a chat with Paul Murphy, partner at North Zone, uh, about his experiences in gaming and how he sees investing specifically into mobile games now in 2020. Like thinking about actually the mobile space, like you have, there's been a, several years now since King and Supercell came up and basically uh, got that rocket ship going. But there's some characteristics that came into like the VC of gaming after that success. And like, what do you think is really going on there right now in the investing space for gaming? Well, I think what you have right now is a really large, mature ecosystem for mobile gaming. Uh, well, gaming in general, but mobile gaming in particular. Mm. Um, so you kind of look at it and you say, well, it, you know, that, that's great. That's amazing. But on the other hand, you don't have a rising tide moment uh, that you had when Supercell and King were, were growing. Mm. So even though they happen to be great companies, the reality is there was like true scarcity in the market. And so any company, and by the way, my last company, Dots, we benefited from this. We were at the tail end of that rising tide. But if we yeah. tried to start Dots today, there's no chance. Like we just never would have broken through in the way that we broke through uh, when we launched in 2013. Um, so I think when you have situations where it's not, you know, rising tide, everyone wins, then you have to be, you know, you have to be much more thoughtful um, about that that's your placing. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of the generalist funds back away from gaming because they realized they actually don't know very much about gaming. They just got lucky mm. uh, at a time when things were growing. And you see more specialized funds, people with really awesome experience uh, making gaming investments because they know the space really well. And they really, they have a, a point of view as to why this one company is going to stand out. So I, I look at groups like Makers Fund, um, London Venture Partners, even Lars at EQT. These are people that just understand gaming really well. Um, yeah. And so they're going to make bets, even though the sort of generalist funds have sort of backed off a little bit. Yeah, I guess that's like segue to my, to the topic that I wanted to talk about is the con confidence to invest into gaming. Then did, do you have the confidence because you were in gaming before you went into VC? Yeah, I mean, I think I do. I, you know, when I joined North Zone, I, I joined officially, uh, I think it was February 1st of 2018. I was kind of with the fund for a bit before that, but I was, that was my kind of official start date. And I met Clang um, two weeks after I joined. I, I flew to Berlin, I met them, and I basically gave them a term sheet um, yeah. a, a few days later. So, I had I had told myself and my partners I was not going to be making gaming investments because I was too cynical. I saw how hard it was, mm. and yet you know two weeks in I was I had made my you know basically proposed to make my first uh, investment, mm. um, and then shortly after that I invested in Bunch, which is also in the gaming space even though it's more of an uh, infrastructure play. Um, so I think it's there. It's just um, and I've met with probably twenty five at least twenty five game studios since I joined. Mm. Um, 
but you know, haven't made any other bets. Uh, so I'm looking and I'm very confident that if I see something that really stands out to me, then I will, I will make a, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a big bet on it, but I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of companies that are for, you know, lack of a better word, kind of doing the same thing. Um, the strategy is, you know, you know, ultra casual to casual to mid core or some version of, you know, we can build a better mousetrap and, uh, raise our LTV over time. And I, there's going to be winners in that space. There have been recently, but I'm just, I know that I'm not going to be one of the people that makes a bet on that. That's, mm. There's not enough that's unique uh, for me to kind of feel like we should do something. In July of 2020, I talked with Celine Pasula, the CEO of Fingersoft, who are the, the makers of hill climb racing games for, for mobile. I wanted to know how Celine has learned to become a CEO of a big games company. You became the CEO at the end of last year, 2019. How have you now chosen what to focus on? Um, I, I think it's usually how I start everything. So I, I listened, I, I wanted to listen what people want to talk about and, and what they want to say. And then of course, observing and learning what I actually saw when I started. Uh, I actually started almost a year ago with a little bit different role, but I think that was a good starting point. And I was able to see the full picture where we are as a company and, and what we are kind of, what is the vision for the future and all that. So uh, I think really like listening because uh, I was a new one. Of course, I had a fresh thinking, but mm. then there's so many people who has a long history with the company. So they know, so much things I don't know. Mm. So kind of starting from that and, and hearing what they really believe in and all that. Yeah. And then you have a blueprint to start moving forward from there. Mm. Yeah. We did, uh, we have been doing lots of uh, internal changes uh, and, and really trying to see where our focus is and, and that, that kind of may be something that's not really visible for the, uh, people externally but uh, internally I think we have done a lot and, and we are in a good place so we had so many good things already when we started so there was great people and this amazing IP Hillcrum Racing and, and all that so I think it was a uh, it was a great opportunity uh, mm. to actually start working on those and, and then adding some things what I have learned along the years I think that's giving the best result hopefully. Mm. What are the big ambitions of Fingersoft? Where, where do you see the, the company going now? Um, I think, uh, of course, company is quite old already. And, and uh, there, was, there has been a really unique starting point for the company and for sure and, and really good years. And uh, it has been uh, definitely a great start. But I, I really truly believe that this is just the beginning of the Fingersoft also. I think there's so many uh, more successful games coming and, and actually creating new IPs. Hill Crime Racing itself is, is amazing and and I, I just can't wait to get out more those kind of games and actually also improving and, and improving uh, our current games 
and life services and and then of course new things that we we have just started up is uh, performance marketing and and actually stabilizing our current portfolio but at the same time uh, i really want to continue to actually grow and and grow through new new titles and new games which we are hopefully launching in the future in june of 2020 i had the honor of talking to sean rotland the co-founder and ceo of hutch who were recently acquired by mtg in this interview i asked sean about building racing games and and catering to the needs of that audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really helps if you're really passionate about that audience. Um, I'm not a petrol head, but I've really grown to love like cars and their artistic form and 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 like the real detail and and the sound and like going on a track day was like really really exciting for me. Mm. So so you could really get into the subject matter. And then you realize if you scratch underneath the surface of a certain subject, like how much stuff there is underneath the surface of it. And you just, me, I took the surface layer and thought, this is, this is what racing games should be. And then yeah. you talk to petrol heads and you realize like, well, we've got a lot of work to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys are basically a, a company that focuses on racing games. But how do you balance the conversation in the company about what kind of games you're making? and or giving more creative freedom for people to explore ideas so the creative freedom at like in our game jams we we want to be as um you want to be direct in terms of these are things we're trying to like like this is a brief this is what we're trying to solve and then sometimes we're quite wide open and we get some really crazy ideas which are some of them have been built and have had good success um Mm. But having a starting point of saying, and I think this is the this is the amazing thing about Supercell is they have a blank sheet of paper and they're trying to entertain the world. Right? We have a sheet of paper that says racing games or racing fans, mm. and so that constraint is actually quite useful for us. It means we can move quicker about yes or no's with our with ourselves in terms of prototyping and, and things to do, and it allows us to to move quite quickly. So. Uh, I'm quite grateful of that focus, and I think it helps the teams. So mm, yeah, that is good. Yeah. Now I want to go into your role and talking about like being a CEO. So what have been the biggest challenges in growing yourself to lead when building a company at the same time? Yeah, I think it's a. I mean, I, I feel really fortunate and lucky that I've had this this job. The job has just changed every year. Like you think you've just, yeah, I've known it. I'm a super CEO now, and then suddenly you've got this like insane emergent problem of cultural issues or finance issues, or I, I, I don't know whatever it is. But you keep evolving and you keep learning. Yeah. Um. So and I'm really, I'm, I'm at peace when I'm constantly learning new things and embracing new things. I think the at the start it was very. I was very heads down and it was easy to be quite insular. But as you grow, I'm, I'm quite a collaborative person. I'm, but I don't want the company to be seen just as me because it's actually, it's the game teams and it's the leadership team that help us kind of architect and allow these teams to work. So 
behind, you know, the leadership team that I have is just phenomenal. They're just like, I know I bring them too many crazy ideas about what we can do in the future and they, they have to kind of moderate me and, and then they have some some real value to add in, in, in those sorts of discussions about where we're going. But I'd be quite happy for there to be a fly in the wall in those leadership meetings and for the team to see how we talk. We don't talk about the games in terms of this mechanic should be changed or that should be that. Yeah. But we really talk about making the best place for people to work. And mm. really, like, if we get that right, then we will be successful because people will be able to make great stuff. Yeah. So, sorry, um, the question was, has my role changed? So, yeah, it's essentially, I mean, recently what's been interesting is because I think we, we were profitable, what, three years ago, we've been profitable for the last three years. And moving from loss-making to profit-making I didn't expect quite the change that happened. So you, when you're loss-making, it doesn't kind of matter that you could continue to be loss-making. It obviously hurts, mm. but you've got, you've got nothing to lose because you're already losing. So mm. you're taking big risks and you're moving forward very quickly. And once you have money, then there's, there's a potential challenge that money papers over the cracks of of issues and um, you're not moving as quick and the mindset becomes less risky. So that has been a that trying to trying to keep the the hungry early stage vibe and energy when you're when you're profit making has has been my sort of biggest challenge in the last two or three years. Yeah. And that and that's nothing that's no disrespect to anyone in, in the team. It's just you become more conservative. You don't want to go back to loss making. Uh, you don't want to take the risks that we used to take, but I think you do need to. You do need to do some bold things, and you don't need to bet the farm, but you do need to make decisions quickly and and move forward. In September of 2020, I had a chat with Gigi Levy Weiss, the managing partner at NFX Fund. Gigi was a founder, and one of the companies he founded was Playtica. So we, we talked a lot about things and one topic that came up was how funds get into investing into games, how generalist funds can start investing into games when they don't have that knowledge background that the specializing funds in gaming do have. When it comes to the early stage, uh, there are two things that uh, that or three things that, that are quite unique where you, a specialized VC can, can do a much better job. The first thing is having that nose that can smell whether something has the right creative flair, which is, you know, everybody that's in movies knows how to do this for movies and everybody that's in music knows how to do that in, for music and everybody that's good in investing in games need to have that. That's one thing. Yeah. The second thing is that being able to detect already from early KPIs what's happening in the, in the game, meaning that, yeah, for a generalist VC, you need a lot of numbers, you need a lot of users, you need a lot of revenues to be able to analyze. But oftentimes, a more educated person in the games industry can, can see this a lot earlier, right? And, and so it's many times you see, it's, it's kind of funny, you see uh, a games company that has kind of okay numbers, and then all the game companies look at buying it and nobody, nobody buys. And the VCs that invested it, they, they, sometimes they don't understand. I've had one of these. They don't understand it, but the numbers are okay. Yeah. But the, the point is, yeah, they look okay. But if, you, if you're in the genre, if you know exactly what to expect, you see the weakness at the end of the retention. You see the fact that people are, are coming every day, but the engagement is low. 
You see that it's monetizing, but it's not spread correctly between the users. You see a bunch of things. And so the first thing is to be able to identify early on whether there's a creative flair. The second thing is to be able to understand the early numbers better. And the third thing is to be able to better analyze whether the character of the people that you're interviewing is in line with the pattern recognition of what's successful in, in early stage games companies. And I think that this combination, these three things, are the reason why, quite interestingly, uh, unlike in other fields, or maybe there are a few very specific ones, but in the early stage investing in games, you see that um, most of the companies that became successful that had external investments, it came from people that are in the game industry. So not a lot of generous investors because it was very difficult. You know, thousands and ten, tens of thousands of game companies it's only the specific people with a specific knowledge of games that we're able to identify who's going to be more uh, more successful. Yeah, like thinking about the the whole mobile space where recently it happened the uh, the peak acquisition by Zynga. There's been a lot of these bigger companies forming up who gathered, like Playtica uh, acquired seriously last year. The, those the forming of these incumbents now in mobile. Do you think there's you know there are there's still space for like fast moving startups or is it more about like figuring out the creative side, getting a really good game, scaling that up and you become one of the big ones. Like why didn't small giants stay independent? Like questions like these, what do you think? Yeah. So the first thing is that I think that both companies, both Platica and Zynga did a phenomenal job in their acquisitions, especially the latest one. Zynga, I didn't like some of the earlier ones, but did a phenomenal job in their acquisitions. Uh, but I think there's a big difference. The big difference is, uh, and again, this is knowing it from the inside. When you look at uh, at Zynga, basically, they buy the companies and they more or less let them be. Mm. You know, a little bit of IT, a little bit of this, but they let them be. When you look at, at Platica, Platica created a very sophisticated optimization machine that basically they buy a company. And once they bought the company, they are starting to implement some of their capabilities into this company, into the game. And I think that part of it, you know, without uh, uh, giving too much detail, part of it is is actually technological. Uh, and what they're doing is that they're basically putting all their tech skills and capabilities mm. into the game so that the game becomes better in day zero, almost. Mm. Uh, and so that the founders of the company that sold the company to Platica are suddenly, their eyes open and they see all the opportunities, all the things that mm. they can do and that's where the magic starts to happen. And so I think why the Playtech acquisitions are more interesting is because they basically taken every company that they acquired and they yeah. dramatically change its trajectory. In other words, it's not about more of the same. It's not the same natural growth. And it's not just about spending more money. It's yeah. about increasing ARPU. It's about increasing retention. It's about putting additional layers of meta games into these, into these games in no time because everything is already ready. It's a service that you can call. And this is something quite unique that nobody's done before. So this is one thing. That's one of the uniqueness of Platica as an amazing company. Mm-hmm. I think that the outcome of this is that uh, when we look at, you know, Playrix that are basically uh, investing in, in every good developer in Eastern Europe, and you see Platica that's buying everything that is great and it's at the right size. You see yeah. Zynga trying to uh, to regain their position in the market by doing bigger and bigger acquisitions. Uh, and all strategies seem to be working. What it does is that it does create a tougher environment for new startups in the mobile space. And so when I look at uh, another, you know, another team with another kind of generic idea 
in mobile gaming, even if they're a good team, I can look at it and say, how much money will they need now to get above the noise? Mm. How much success will they need to have on all fronts so that this becomes a meaningful game? And how easy would it be for the founders to say no to a $100 million offer that may come maybe a bit earlier compared to where it should come? Because a Platica or a Zynga or somebody else knows that on their channels, this can be worth a lot more. And, and it's funny because, you know, in investing in, in heavier tech companies over the years, you see this with, uh, with Cisco buying a company. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you a story of, uh, of a company without naming it. But, you know, Cisco came to buy a company. The company was selling like uh, only $10 million at that time. Uh, it was many years ago. Let's say that the valuation of something that sells $10 million should have been around $80 million, maybe. Okay. And Cisco comes in and puts an offer for uh, 200. Mm. And the offer for 200, uh, the board sits there, scratches the head and says, wow, how can you even think about it? We don't think it's worth 200 now. We, we couldn't raise it 200 for sure. And yeah. so they, they call the CEO and they say, this, they ask the CEO, so, you know, we need to think whether we want to continue or not. And, uh, and at 200, at the normal multiples in the market, you should be selling like 50 million. Okay, you're selling 10 now. How sure are you that you can get to 50 million and how long is it going to take you? And so the CEO says, I'm sure that I can do it, but I need to a new head of sales and I need this and I need that. I need to invest more in R&D. And, and so by the time the CEO finishes, they're, they're basically thinking that, okay, maybe we do not want uh, to take that risk. Now, the reason why Cisco, then I asked Cisco why they're doing it. And Cisco is saying, well, because we know that this product on our channels is going to sell around half a billion dollars. Right. So for them, there's really no question. And this is what we're seeing all around. And this is, uh, I think, what's happening also in the games industry. That's it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed these highlights. If you like our content, please follow or do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com where we have a lot of material regarding gaming startups. See you next time guys. Bye bye.